Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. Thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is The Final Word, cricket podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, a week when there will be so much cricket to talk about we couldn't even consider having a guest on the show. Uh, everything is happening. The, the streak, the Australian women's ODI Winning streak is over at 26 games. Moen Ali is retired from Test cricket. Uh, England pulled out of Pakistan. That happened while we were recording last week, so we're coming to that a bit late. But at least, at least the takes will not be hot. They'll be lukewarm. The county championship wrapping up. The Sheffield Shield getting started or not. Men's cricket, women's cricket, pink ball cricket, red ball cricket, white ball cricket. Rachel Hayhoe, Flint, all of these things going on. And it is on the final word, the start of season 11. Season 11 of the show because it's the first week of the Australian international summer or it has been over the the last week. And that's when we switch from Northern Hemisphere to Southern Hemisphere, from season 10 to season 11. As the seasons pass, so they fade and so the next lines up behind and we have a whole big cricket season ahead for all the people who think that their cricket season's just winding down. If you're in the North, it's not over. Stay with us and it will always be summer with us. It will always be summer in your heart. <laughs> Hello, Adam. 
Hello, I'm looking up at Felix's book over there. It's always summer somewhere, and that, that, that's sort of uh, reflective of our, our show, isn't it? 11 seasons, so I think we worked out recently, we might have made about 330-odd episodes, mm. which means we're probably closer to 400 than we are 300 now, which is pretty cool. So, yes, as you say, our naming convention is that we go from uh, southern to northern summer, one after the next. And, yes, you're right, we have too much to talk about this week to even consider having a guest with us. I note that people on YouTube, hello to you there, waving down the camera, have been critical of us not having the camera right up in our face. We just like it, like observing the podcast. This is not really Mm -hmm. about talking down the barrel of the camera as we might at the end of a day's play. Mm -hmm. This is a bit different. You're just kind of snooping in on what we're doing here because this is principally a podcast we're just hanging out doing our thing hanging out doing our thing so but welcome to you all i should say i'm not not trying to say you're less important for watching on youtube but it's you know different different you're in the room you're in the room you're hanging out i I would say there have only been about three people who've said that whereas many other people enjoy the fact that this is not yet another zoom call staring down the guts of the camera staring up at someone's nose hairs because they haven't positioned their camera very well so there are, it, it takes all types to make a world, and that is more true of YouTube than many other places. Uh, Jeff, a couple of years ago, in 2019, during the World Cup, we had a press release log from Cricket Australia, and you had a tremendous amount of fun with it around the <laughs> Sean Marsh music, what we dubbed the Sean Marsh music at the time. So needless to say, when HCL Technologies recommitted to their partnership with Cricket Australia, which was released during the week, I thought of you and, and your excitement at this revelation, and the wording inside the release didn't disappoint. Well, it's not a, it, it's not a re-signing, but it's the first thing that I can see that they've actually done, because at the time we were told oh, this would be a big new partnership, but this is, this is a thing. They've done a thing. Uh, and what the thing is, is a bit hard to understand, because the wording comes from HCL Technologies, one of the foremost producers of absolute gobbledygook in the entire <laughs> world. Um, HCL does sterling work in this area. So, yeah, I just thought I'd... I'll, I'll give this to the listeners and I'll see if you can, can follow what's going on. HCL Technologies, a leading global technology company alongside Cricket Australia as its official digital transformation partner, announced the winners of the 2021 Tech Jam, hashtag inspired by HCL. <laughs> It's a global collaboration platform to crowdsource technology-led solutions that push the boundaries of innovation. It used Azure as a platform sandbox while leveraging technology as a means to unite and encourage the passion for cricket. The winning solutions have the potential to be implemented into Cricket Australia's ecosystem. Fast-tracking technology's impact on the sport. The Tech Jam demonstrates innovative digital solutions that are crucial to advancing the game of cricket for its fans, players and community engagement. (laughs) What an absolute work of art. I mean, I've worked in comms in the past before I did this for a living. There's a consultant somewhere who has been paid probably quite a lot of money for the hashtag inspired by HCL for a total of zero people to use it apart from HCL Technologies. 
and, and imagine you're the, imagine you are the, the media flack who's had to write that release and how many hands it's gone through before Cricket mm-hmm. Australia to their enormous reach. I mean that, that that release is going out to probably hundreds of thousands of people, and you are the comms advisor for HCL who have written mm-hmm. those those paragraphs. It's a stunning industry sometimes. What really lands home with me is the things you can be inspired by. You know, you could be inspired by Gandhi. You could be inspired by <laughs> holding your newborn child in your arms for the first time. Uh, you could be inspired by standing on, on a cliff and, and looking at the waves as they roll in. And you could be inspired by HCL. Thank God, HCL inspired me. I woke up one morning and the reason I had to go on was there. HCL Technologies, that's what inspired me. Great to have them back. Uh, and, Jeff, maybe they, they are inspiring. The Indian women and, and the one, Australian one thing, women. Can, can, I, can I jump in with one thing before please, this? Because I just realised, I just realised when I spoke of holding a newborn child in in one's arms and we had we had Evelyn announced on the show a week ago two yes. weeks ago I had a message in during the week from our listener and subscriber sexy Ryan Thomas who has also had an arrival during oh. the week he sent us a message to say it's been an incredible week and a half question mark time no longer has any meaning it's been amazing so far we're totally in love with little Teddy Thomas welcome Teddy Thomas to the world and uh, we hope that in 18 years or so when we're still making this show whether you like cricket or not whether you're good at it or not you have a place in a TFW 11 in the future Absolutely. Good on you, Ryan, and family. Little Teddy as well, what a great name. Um, well, a nice note to move into the, the meat and drink of the show, which starts with uh, the one-day series, the thrilling one-day series, Jeff, between uh, Australia and India to start this series, this multi-format points series at Mackay. Jeff, because of the time difference and the other work I was doing last week, which was fairly relentless, I didn't see an awful lot of it, but I did see the highlights and, and catch the scores and tap into the controversy after the second mm-hmm. game. I mean, what a perfect... I don't think we've had a, a multi-format point series so well poised leading into the Test match. I know the Test match started the series between India and England earlier this year, but if you're going to start the one day as first, you want to have mm. a fair bit of tension leading into the Test, and we've got that now. And you want to have a sense that you don't quite know which team's on top. Yeah, um, Because yeah. This, this was a remarkable streak of games in that Australia absolutely clobbered them in the first one. I mean, this was sort of Mumbai 2001 areas, steamroll them in the first match uh, and then India comes back and ends up breaking the streak, not in game two, but in game three. I mean, Australia chased 225, one wicket down. (laughs) Just laughably easy, really. Haynes, Lanning, Healy doing all of it. Usual suspects. Yeah, yeah. And but this second match where it's an Australian chase and it's a big Australian chase and this was I loved seeing Beth Mooney do what she did because, you know, we've we've been on the Beth Mooney train since right at the beginning when she couldn't get into the Australian team back in twenty fifteen or so. They're four for fifty odd. They're chasing two hundred and sixty five and she makes an unbeaten hundred coming in at number five, not her preferred spot, likes to open, but has been down the order at five and then had to come in to open in the second match because Rachel Haynes was injured. So Mooney traditionally opens but hasn't been able to open recently, then gets thrown into the opener's spot and she's the one who bats through. 125 not out and her fitness, her resilience to still be there 
at the end, you know, and to be down on her haunches, gasping for breath at times, but still able to middle the ball when she faced her next delivery was extraordinary. The the way they turned that chase around was extraordinary. Talia McGrath made her highest ever score, made 74, was it, and was attacking when it had run a ball. And then Nicola Carey came in at the end and made 39, not out at a runner ball as well. But there was there was so much more going on. Yeah, well, we might come to the controversy at the end in a moment. Just on Beth Mooney and her story, I interviewed her during lockdown last year a couple of times actually, but one of, the, one of those was about how she... There were points in her career when it was touch and go as to whether she was going to take the next step partially because of her fitness. Mm. And she acknowledges this, that um, she wasn't fit enough to play the long innings. And I was thrilled to see the scorecard because, you know, I can imagine how hot it must have been in Mackay, how human it must have been as well. And there she was batting the whole way through uh, for an unbeaten one two five, and, and in, a, you know, in a thrilling chase that needed them to push themselves all the way to the brink. So I think that's a, a nice uh, part of this for Mooney herself, sort of seeing evidence now that uh, that she's fit as a fiddle, uh, that she can go out and do something like this and be... Mm. I mean, she's been one of the best players in the world for a number of years, but it feels like when, you know, I kind of jokingly said the usual suspects with Haynes, Lanning and, uh, and Healy winning the first game. Well, you know, I think Mooney deserves to be part of that conversation as well. She was player of the tournament at the uh, T20 World Cup last year pre-COVID, so, and now doing it in 50-over cricket. We saw uh, that innings of endurance in the final of the WBBL, I think it was three summers ago when she was deathly ill yeah, two in a row two in a she row. did it two years running yeah and one of those she was really sick and didn't think she could mm. play at all and ended up uh, being a match winner and that all comes down to fitness doesn't it so yeah what a star and yeah i'm glad that's a bandwagon we've been on since the start because um she's had a fabulous career so far and and i suppose um a big uh, six months ahead of her with the world cup coming up in march and as was pointed out to us in the discord channel what we had at the end of that run chase was effectively the conversation we had on the final word some months ago about situations where it would be in the fielding team's advantage to drop a catch. So the last ball of the innings that gets bowled to Nicola Carey when Australia need three runs to win mm. and she pulls it straight to square leg and gets caught. She's out, they celebrate, then the, the umpires check it, they send it upstairs, the third umpire says it's a no ball. That means, uh, but the two players hadn't crossed, so they didn't get an extra run, but they got one run for the for the no ball. Carey faces up again, needing two to win at this stage, and smacks it into a gap at mid-wicket and they run back for the second run. This is one of these interesting ones where if, I think it was Yastika Bhatia who took that catch at square leg, had she dropped that catch but then thrown it back into the wicketkeeper and they'd only been able to run a single, the umpires probably wouldn't have sent that upstairs. You know, it was one of those right. line ball, no balls where they're probably not going to check it if a player wasn't dismissed from it. But because the player was, they sent it upstairs and it was ruled a no ball, which, you know, totally line ball decision, one that any third umpire could have made one way, could have made the other, I think, because it was above waist height when it was hit, but her back leg was parallel with the turf and her bat was well out of her crease. She was reaching out to hit that ball and so it hadn't reached the crease line yet. So, yeah, it was uh, it was one that could have gone either way and it ended up costing him a game. Yeah, it, it's, it sort of reinforces that point we've made before that just because television officials um, oversee the game doesn't mean that, that it's completely black and white. It's why you need really specialised television umpires to make decisions like that. It, it isn't like the old bit with run-outs and stumpings. The TV umpire's brief is far wider than that now and you're right, you could build a case 
either way, but happy enough to go with what they said at the time that it is indeed part of the game. And I, I just you, you mentioned Talia McGrath before. She made her international debut, I think it was during the Women's Ashes in 2017. It wasn't a bolter as such, but she was used to balance yeah. the team off and had a really important half century in the North Sydney Test match. Great to see her back on the back of excellent domestic form last season, especially a, a 70 and a threefer in that second game. Whilst the, the headlines go with Mooney, they couldn't have done it without McGrath as well. Absolutely. Bowled really well, had a fair bit of shape with her bowling, picked up wickets on a pretty regular basis and yeah looks powerful with the bat that uh, 77 from 74 balls was the innings so she was able to give it the juice while Mooney was just sort of hanging in there while they were together and then after she got out that was when Mooney upped the ante a bit and started playing a bit more aggressively going over mid on and so on but I think so, so what I said about the no ball deciding the game it does in one sense but also India were shocking in the field in that last 10 overs or so. I think every delivery in the last over was a misfield. They gave away runs with misfields. Even on the very last ball, it should have been scores tied with a run out, except the throwback in was terrible. And uh, a couple of balls before, Goswami had fumbled one at the stumps instead of getting the run out. There was also an LBW that wasn't given that should have been, where Carey was hit by one that the umpire thought was angling across and missing off stump, but it wasn't. So, you know, there were a lot of ways that India could have won the game earlier um, had they been better. Yeah, experience, isn't it? Experience playing in tight games at the end. It highlights the lack of a women's Indian Premier League, which we have been talking about forever. Will it happen? Who's to know? But I think nights like that, if they'd played more cricket in those conditions, not acknowledging mm. that yeah, humidity and how dewy it would have been out there towards the end, but nothing can really match the experience of being in, in pressure situations like that. And at the moment, the Indian team just aren't exposed to that as often as they should be. So that'll continue to bubble away in the background uh, with a lot of people. I saw Harsha tweeting about it last night again, and he's spot on to do so. And uh, yeah, hopefully, regardless of how this series plays out, that might mm. take them, you know, there's the cynical way of looking at it and saying that had they won the T20 World Cup at the MCG last Last year, we'd already have one, much as it was with the men back in 2008. Or there's the more sort of open-minded view that this is inevitable. It's just about someone having the leadership capacity at the BCCI to make it so. Hmm. And if if that leadership is already pushing test cricket as they are, then it doesn't seem like too huge a jump to think that they will support this, hopefully sooner than later. I thought what was really telling, though, was in the third match, the fact that India actually had the composure to end up winning that game because they so they fielded first in the third game they'd blown the other one what 36 hours earlier they hadn't had much time to regroup and they were awful in the field they bowled well but fielded horribly like genuinely one of the worst full game performances I've seen so in the second game they only fielded badly for the last 10 overs or so in the third game they fielded badly all day they dropped like half a dozen catches, a couple of them were some of the easiest ones you will ever see, you know, straight up in the air, the wicketkeeper dropping it. Shafali Verma dropped a couple, had about half a dozen misfields that gave away runs. There were literally, I think, six boundaries that were given away when a player was there, got their hands down and just didn't touch the ball. Awful, awful, awful stuff. And I just thought watching it at the time, they're going to fall apart in the chase here because they were rattled. Shafali was rattled. She was angry and kicking the ground and stomping around. And, and we saw how it messed her up in the T20 World Cup final when she dropped a catch while they were fielding and and it looked like she was so bothered by it that maybe it affected her batting. And then they come out in the run chase and Shafali makes a 50, but completely against type, a slow 50 off about 90 balls. 
Yastika Bhatia at first drop is the one, you know, she's the real find of this series. She makes 64 at a good clip and keeps them in it. And then it's Deep Tishama and, and Snay Rana who see them home with 30 and 31 they made respectively. It almost felt like they were lucky that Matali Raj got out pretty quickly. I, I feel awkward saying that. But in a big run chase, she came out and was going at a strike rate of 50, as she generally does, and got out for 16. And it was like, well, now they still have time to win the game because she's not there. She's not going to keep doing that until it's too late for everybody else. But the fact that they saw it over the line at the end, I thought was huge after everything they'd gone through in in the previous, you know, 150 overs that they'd played. Yeah, with Mathali, it's a bit of an outdated model. The argument being that she starts slowly and and her strike rate catches up because she hits a lot of boundaries towards the end of an innings after passing 50. But if you get out in that in-between bit, it it looks pretty pretty dire. Glad Snayrana was involved at the end too, my favourite player from the uh, the Mm. England-India series earlier this year. I think I've told the story before, but her father passed away earlier this year. She got herself back in the team. She lost seven kilos to get picked for India again. She led railways, I think, in Madali's absence mm-hmm. for a little bit in the domestic season last year. She's dedicated her return to the Indian team to her late father. She was wonderful in that test match, uh, taking wickets and an unbeaten 80 on the final afternoon to make sure that, that India split the difference there. So, And also Julan Goswami uh, hitting the winning runs. Again, I've only seen the highlights, unfortunately, for this one, mm-hmm. but Julan bowled the last over of the second one day, didn't she? The one that, yeah. uh, that had all and the... Bowled- Two, two, no two balls, two, two that slipped out of her hand. Yeah, well, and, the full toss that goes above waist height plus the beamer. You know, you can kind yeah. of yeah. And again, the, all the caveats around how challenging the conditions must have been there late at night. But nonetheless, being able to do it with the bat, she's taken more wickets in one day cricket than anyone in women's mm-hmm. uh, one day cricket of all time. I think it's up towards two eighty wickets, something like that now. So, uh, and still going strong and, and fully committed to the World Cup next year. And bowled better than I've seen her bowl for a couple of years. I think like maybe three or four years. Like she bowled really well with the new ball the second ODI the one she got a one to cut back in that bowled Elisa Healy for nothing after Healy had bossed the first game like shape in shape away good bounce so really looking forward to seeing how she goes in the test match and yeah I mean it was it was Snay Rana off McGrath with three boundaries that really set it up she goes the the scoop over her shoulder the uppercut over short third and then smacks one over mid on and you're like yeah that's your off spinner you're going okay (laughs) Uh, speaking of that test match which is scheduled to start uh, later in the week so long as it goes ahead I mean and we're going to talk in more depth about this later but the Tasmanian team have left Queensland today and aren't Mm -hmm. playing a shield game now I know the Gold Coast isn't in one of the affected areas or one of the local government areas that have been uh, taking action in the last 24 hours but I mean, we see how quickly the variant can spread and the vaccination rates in in Queensland aren't aren't quite what they are in other parts of the country. You couldn't rule out this test match having problems with what date it starts on thursday jeff am i right in saying yeah thursday so that's still between now and then that's still 36 hours until they they bowl the first ball everything crossed because there could be wider implications with the women's big bash league i know i'm jumping ahead a bit here jeff but there have been a number of players who signed up for the wbbl from the Indian national which, team, which is a which wonderful... Which starts in Tasmania. It starts in Tasmania, and that's a wonderful thing. Now, not only the Indian recruits, but also the Australian players who are who are integral to the strength of the WBBL, if they mm. can't get to Tassie, where the first 20 games are going to be played without a 14-day quarantine, I mean, that might be reason alone to move the test or, or to somehow reconfigure this series, because if there's any risk of them being stuck in Queensland... They'll have no choice, really. I mean, I, 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 I am sympathetic 
whilst it's frustrating, I'm sympathetic to the Tasmanians getting out of there because, well, if, if they don't, then they could be staring down the barrel of, of 14 days to get back into their home state. And that will be precisely the same for the Indian recruits. Why wouldn't they just jump on a plane and go home and sack off the WBBL mm. in, in that scenario? So a few moving parts to consider here. Or why wouldn't they all just decamp and have the test at Bell Reef and, and do it that way? Because yeah, we've yeah. seen that basically every state that doesn't have COVID is pretty quick to close their borders to states that do. So Queensland oh. at the moment had And, then, then had they, and they won't have Bell Reef as Bell Reef will have other commitments on it, but they can play it at the TCA ground, one of the most beautiful cricket grounds <laughs> there in Hobart. There's a number of options when you think about it. They could play it at York Park. Uh, Get a drop Lawson. in at York Park. But, that, York Park does host, as we know, uh, games in the, in the Women's Big Bash League. I'm not sure whether North Hobart what Oval about Bernie's? has... They play it at Bernie. Look, there's op- what about Queenstown that has the gravel, the football ground? With, well, it isn't a gravel surface, but it looks like it's gravel when, you, when you're looking from the sort of uh, helicopter shots. So, yeah, Tasmania. What about Wineglass Bay? Can they play the game at Wineglass Bay? Maybe on the sand. They have a beach cricket test at Wineglass Bay. <laughs> well, the point is, if they have to get the Tassie quickly, I'm sure there'll be a wonderful ground to host them. But the TCA ground, that's a, that's a belter. So, mm. uh, yeah, we're, just here in, we're in the ideas business, Jeff. We'll see. Well, yeah, a lot more ideas um, coming up. I, I would, a quick word for Molly Strano, who was on as a sub and took an absolute blinder of a catch down at deep third, sprinting forward, full dive to get Stella Campbell's first wicket in one day cricket. She debuted for Australia, Stella Campbell. So lots of nice little moments uh, there. But yeah, interesting going into the test. Let's let's assume it goes ahead because I guess everyone's in Queensland. But yeah, as you say, if you if you wipe out 15 of the best players in Australia from the start of the WBBL and tell them that they have to do two more weeks in a hotel room in order to play the Big Bash, yeah, they're probably not going to be keen to do it. They already had to do two weeks to get into Queensland for this series, so if they have to do two more to get out, they would rightly be very unimpressed, I would think. But assuming it does happen, Yastikabatia, a really good find at first drop. Risha Gosh did pretty well. The wicketkeeper made a couple of significant scores. So 32 not out and 44 weren't. They're not huge on the scorecard, but they were important in matches. Meghna Singh looked really good with the new ball alongside Goswami, like outswingers. Only took one wicket, but it was pretty hard to score off. Everybody was a bit nervous because she, she swung the ball at a decent clip. And they were rotating their spinners in here as well with uh, Rajeshwari Gayakwad, Poonam Yadav and Snehrana coming in and out of that team. So they've got lots of options. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Australia because Rachel Haynes can't play. She's got a hamstring injury. So interesting to see how that works. Does Ash Gardner come up into the middle order and have more of an explosive influence rather than coming in late down the order as she did last time they played a test in England? Yeah, I'd love to see that. Um, we, we saw that she was sort of underutilised last time, Gardner, when she played that test match, which is a long time ago, by the way. So India have played a test this year. There might be four Australian debuts uh, on Thursday, which means that, I mean, yes, Australia have more experience overall, probably, I think, maybe, possibly, but recent experience, India played very well at Bristol. Uh, so, as I said at the start of this uh, discussion, yes, Australia lead 2-1. Maybe India should be leading 2-1, if that, not for that n- no ball, and they're going into a format of the game where they only played a couple of months ago. For Australia, it's been two and a half years. A uh, word also for the Australians on their 26 wins in a row. I mean, that's going back, what, three years now? That streak, an absurd streak. They got the record at 21, 22, and have made it their own by winning the next few matches beyond that as well. A pretty ridiculous achievement 
uh, to to clock up that sort of streak and to be able to keep it going in that that game where they should have lost it and didn't. Yeah, look, it might be one of those things that, that they are fortunate that it's come to an end before the World Cup or even indeed the Women's Ashes for that matter. I mean, it's just an extra layer of... Like they still won the series uh, 2-1. They, they still performed admirably throughout. You know, sure, they would have loved to have defended 264 in the final one day to close out the series. But they move on to the Women's Ashes one day as in February. Long time between now and then, by the way. And they won't be constantly having a conversation around this streak that goes back however many years. So, yeah, not the worst thing in the world, I think, for it to come to an end now. But to be celebrated because uh, I doubt it'll ever be beaten. I mean, you say these things with recency bias, don't you? But uh, there's a reason why teams don't win that many one-day internationals in a row, because of the volatility of white ball cricket, which is typically a good thing. And in a way, I hope nobody can do that again, because it'll mean that if anyone's going to do it, it'll actually be the Australian women. But hopefully, the gap between Australia and the rest narrows rather than widen into the future. Yeah, and that if any team does it, it will take them years to do it. So Mm. it's it's a massive um, undertaking if someone were to to try to level up with that, um, that that makes it unlikely in itself given it takes a bit longer in women's cricket, fewer matches are played. So to have your personnel performing for that period of time, and it's easier to do it if you're a men's team back in the time when Ponting's team was doing it, playing seven match series and that sort of thing because you could win three series in a row and you'd almost be there. Yeah, that's right. And remember, the streak started not long after that 2017 World Cup semi-final where they lost there and kind of underperformed throughout, really. They never looked the, the complete package uh, in that competition. And now they can focus all their energy on winning the World Cup in March next year. So it'll be nearly five years between World Cups for 50-over cricket for women due to COVID. So, yeah, I, I'd imagine they'd far rather that be where the energy is being invested into rather than sort of talking about the streak it was it extended and extended uh, over the last couple of series. The Indian players going to the Big Bash that you talked about, Smriti Mandana and Deep Tisham are going to Sydney Thunder, Shafali Verma and Radha Yadav to the Sixers. This is very cheering to see because it's, it basically shows the BCCI being more more willing to, to play ball. We, you know, they've been a little bit, Harman Preet came and played a bit for the Sydney Thunder and so on, but we haven't seen a lot of mm. Indian players in the Big Bash and it's feels like that's something that can only help them improve as we've seen with the South Africans where pretty much every South African who's ever picked up a cricket bat has played a big bash season or two. It seems like that's been part of helping their cricket get up to the level where it is now. Yeah, totally. And you're right, there have been Indian overseas players in the, in the WBBL since season two, I'm pretty sure it was. Was it Harman Preet and Smithy Mandana might have been? Yeah, Mandana early. played for the Hurricanes yeah. and Harman Preet played for the Thunder. But it's always been pretty partial. It's been like a few games before having to go on a tour yes. or, you know, filling in or playing six games here but it yeah. hasn't been like a bunch of the big names coming at once. Th- that's right and in the absence of England players coming out, Maya Bouchier has signed to come uh, for the Melbourne Stars and that's because they want to get 14 games of cricket into her. It's quite a strategic thing that they are thrilled about Maya coming out to play for the Stars whereas a number of the England players who have been involved all summer, their busiest summer and Lisa Cartley spoke on our coverage about this um, after the final one day international, it was that you know, a lot of these cricketers have never had a summer quite like this. You know, domestic cricket at a regional level, the 100, a full multi-format series against India, and now five one-dayers and three T20 internationals in September, all the way to the back end. So they're actually knackered, and that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing that they've really kind of played a lot of cricket this year. Nowhere near as much cricket as men's domestic players play or, or that a lot of the England three-format players, but 
in relative or in comparison rather to, to what's been the case uh, in years gone by. So that means that there may not be quite the enthusiasm to send players to Australia if they've been playing under those conditions. So they now can get there because the Pakistan series has been cancelled, by the way, uh, until uh, that announcement was made last week. They couldn't have physically done the journey logistically. Now they can, and some players have considered it. And I heard a couple might still yet sign at the very last minute. There was a couple of whispers doing the rounds last week. But the prevailing attitude is that let's take a beat and let's prepare for the women's ashes, which start in January, and on they go. But it does open up uh, this space for Indian imports and presumably the South Africans as well. And that's been a big part of why the WBBL has not only been a great domestic comp, but a bit of an all-stars competition across the five or six years it's been in operation now. It's not just about Australian players, but it's about uh, the broader offering. So uh, the Indians will absolutely add to that. England and New Zealand women, their series wrapped up. The Kiwis did manage to win a game after we recorded last week. They crawled home in a, a small run chase and somehow just managed to not lose it. Um, and then England blew them away in the last couple and ended up winning it 4-1. And all of that was happening with the backdrop of the MCC bringing in the change to the language that batsman is out, batter is the language they're going to use in the laws, which got the predictable kind of hair-tearing-out response you'd expect from some egregious fuckwits. But it's not like there's a law that you can't use the word. It's just that in the formal wording of the laws, they will use batter to be consistent with fielder and bowler, as plenty of people have pointed out. Why not? And I think it it just helps formalise something that a lot of us have been shifting to bit by bit. But it, it helps lay a line that that makes it easier for publications and so on to say, well, if that's the wording in the laws, then that's the wording we'll go with in future. Yeah, I'll, my own experience with this was that early on when I first started covering women's cricket, I was big on using batsmen. And the reason being is for the same reason that the, the Guardian uses actor, whether it's a, a male or a female, they don't use actress, they use actor throughout because they, they feel as though the term covers both. I thought batsmen did the same thing in terms of, you know, using man as humankind man rather than using man as in as in male. Now, my view was turned around because Mel Jones argued the counterpoint to me and, and it became fairly clear that why should I be telling women uh, how they should feel about being called batsmen? You should probably listen to women on, on this one involved in the game and who, who have been thought leaders in the game like MJ. So I was very happy to modify my position and I couldn't be more supportive of this. You know, you get the old... Um, gammon and trashy trashy old boys who go well you know um, batter as it is on a piece of fish i mean words can have more than one meaning surely we have the the, the flexibility <laughs> the, the the flexibility of thought to understand that words can mean more than one thing so yes batter is the thing that appears on a piece of flake when they get their fish and chips on a friday night as i'm mm-hmm. sure all of these old white men do but also it can mean in this it can mean this too and that is okay language mm-hmm. evolves and like you say there was the predictable response the predictable howling you know from the usual quarters uh, and now it's all become a bit a bit like with the ollie robinson thing wasn't it so many people who don't give a fuck about cricket day to day suddenly had a very strong view about a player who was going to be cancelled out of cricket the woke culture meaning Ollie Robinson will never play again Ollie Robinson missed one test match he played every test of the India series they went through a formal process and it ended up with a perfectly reasonable balanced outcome and it's this and funnily enough it's the same people it's the same crew who are having a conniption over this so we all know who they are we all know what they are we all know what they represent it doesn't matter in the slightest and as 
as I think uh, I think George Tabell said on Twitter, if this means that the game is a little bit more inclusive to young girls coming through, does it make a lick of difference? Of course it doesn't. There's no possible negative repercussions from this. The only repercussions mm. are potentially having more girls deciding to play cricket because they feel it's more a sport for them. Fair play. You know, green light. No big deal. And the MCC, you know, we often... You know, Jeff, we had a conversation briefly about the MCC last week. You know, it's easy to point at them as a bastion of old English aristocratic values. Well, they've shown themselves to be quite a progressive modern organisation in the last decade or so, not least the fact that Claire Connor takes over as the president this week, the first woman to lead that organisation in 250 years. It's a small but important step, as is this. It, it symbolises where the game's going, not where the game's been. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, there, there is an entire extensive genre of, of humour that people may be familiar with uh, that involves puns, which, which are... Uh, instances where a word means two things and you have the usage of one meaning when it actually should have the usage of another and that is considered humorous. Yes, words can mean more than one thing and that is okay. Before we move off the uh, England-New Zealand series, uh, you're right in saying that um, uh, New Zealand did win the third. Just a couple of points from that. Molly Penfold's uh, a likely type. Uh, She took two wickets on debut, bowled more quickly than anybody in the series. She's 20 years of age. She's played about 10 domestic games and they picked her on sort of raw talent at 20 years of age and uh, she's one to watch into the future. Leah Tahuhu taking five for 37, I think it was, career best figures to set up that Leicester win and I suppose it gave England plenty to think about and work on in the final two games and they had their highest successful run chase in the fourth game so I think they hauled down about 240. 50-odd, something like that. That was a Heather Knight century, her second ton in, in 50-over cricket for England. And as Vish, uh, Vish said during the week, she's quietly becoming a, a great of England cricket, isn't she? World Cup captain winner in 2017. The only England player to have a century in all three formats of the game. Uh, the you know the, the consistency of her output over the last decade or so. And she's still only 30, and she'll be the captain uh, leading into that World Cup next March. And then in the fifth game, uh, they go and Smack 347, their highest score since the 2017 World Cup, Jeff, I think I'd be right in saying, where they laid the foundation in that way that we became so familiar with in that tournament. Beaumont runs up the top. Her second century at home where she plays at Canterbury, eighth for England. They've all come since 2016. She's a tour de force. Uh, And then supported by two players who I thought might be vying for one spot in Danny Wyatt and Sophia Dunkley. I thought maybe there'll be room for a finisher than Catherine Brunt at seven. Well, if you've got the hitting ability of Wyatt uh, and what we've seen since she's been recalled to the team for the second one day, she was exceptional. And then Sophia Dunkley, who's had a wonderful summer overall between the 100 and the India series and finishing it well down at Kent. Maybe they'll have to find room for both of them. And that's a, a pretty good problem for them to have. And even Amy Jones, who had a pretty rough summer, made 60 in the final one day. Uh, the one spot that's probably available is that of Lauren Winfield-Hill, who got dropped four times on the way to 40-odd, hasn't made a half century in five years. Uh, and as for New Zealand, I mean, you know, Jeff, uh, they, they had a stinker in the final game. I reckon Brooke Halliday probably is a player to, for the future. I, I think they should open with her at the World Cup. I think, you know, left hand, right hand, they'll give them a bit more flexibility. Uh, and then as for Susie Bates, Sophie Devine and, and Amy Satterthwaite, they all had their say at different points during the series, the big three, but they're still too reliant on one of the three of them being match winning. Otherwise, it, it, it's, it feels difficult to see how they get to the semifinals of their home World Cup. The uh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint final. I've always thought, like, 
rather than the Australians, they give Rachel Haynes the nickname of Desi, as in Desmond Haynes. I think they should call her Rachel Haynes Ho Flint. Uh, that would be <laughs> that'd be more, Flinty. more fitting. Um, Flinty. Flinty. Al Flinty. Yep, Southern Vipers won that in a replay of the final last year against the Diamonds. The final bit of action in women's domestic cricket in England for their season. Huge summer for domestic women's cricket with the Hey Ho Flint, with the Charlotte Edwards Cup, with the 100 all the international cricket we mentioned before. Bit of a thriller in the end. Not a not the highest quality game I've seen this year in that um, there were some massive collapses and some pretty poor dismissals. Um, the Diamonds were 116 for eight at one stage and I'm thinking, well, I'm on an early train here. But no, it didn't quite work out that way. George Adams took four for and Charlotte Taylor two for with their kind of slow off spin. Uh, but then Amy Campbell recovered it for the Diamonds. They set 184. And then in reply, Beth Langston, Jeff, who was an England player a couple of years ago, um, bowled George Adams with uh, one of the best balls you'll see, bending back her off stump in the first over. There was another collapse from Jenny Gunn playing her 316th list day game across 20 years. That might be her farewell, who's to know. But she took three for, including two in two balls, which left the Vipers 109 for seven. And then I think one of the best parts of the final was that it was Emily Windsor walking out at about five or six, I mean, she's not a professional. Remember, there's 41 pros mm. in, in, at domestic level and 17 from the national team. There are still about half of these teams with effectively amateurs who are having day jobs. In the case of Emily, she's a physiotherapist. She's been doing some commentary for Test Match Special uh, this summer as well. And she made, uh, yeah, she was about 20 off 70 odd. And then she found a partner in Tara Norris, who'd only faced 16 balls this season. T- Norris made 40, Windsor made 47, not out, an unbeaten 83 run stand, a thrilling finish. Uh, they won with a couple of balls to spare by three wickets and Windsor was the player of the match. And Charlotte Edwards, yet again, uh, the victorious coach. She's got a bit of the Midas touch, Lottie. Um, so, uh, and she's, <laughs> she's off to the BBL today, actually. She's flying this morning to Adelaide for quarantine and then off to uh, coach with the uh, strikers as she has for the last couple of years. So, yeah, it was a really good end to the season, uh, an exciting final and a good host in North Hans. Very good. Uh, I think it's time for a game. Is it time for a game? I think it might be. A little bit of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with people on our patron page. We need to fund the show, and so they help us do that by sending contributions. But the contributions are not normal round amounts of currency. They're amounts that relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what it is. Before we get to our Nerd Pledge number for this week, We should mention that sometimes when we get a number wrong, then people write back to us. We do a segment on the show called Revisits. Adam had a live revisit at a cricket ground at Canterbury during the week when he was bailed up by James Philbrook, who came out of the stands and said, you just did my number on the show this week. Yeah, he, he, he didn't listened, get it right. He listened to the podcast on the way to Canterbury <laughs> to watch the, the last one day. And his number was 275. And I think the clue was Canterbury or something like that. And the fact that we were at mm-hmm. Canterbury uh, drew it all together quite well. But yeah, I think he went, uh, did you do Thiramane's batting average yep, this year I or did. something? No, his, his career average, now that he's added like five runs to it, having been really good this year, knowing that he's he's one of your particular favourites, yeah. I thought I'd put him in the show. No, that, that was nice of you. But no, it was it, he, he was saying to me, he was insisting that I needed to look at what I was seeing in front of me. And I just couldn't see what he was talking about. We left it with, it's a partnership worth 275. And mm-hmm. I didn't clock that the original clue was to do with Canterbury. If I did, I would have pieced it together then and there that... that 
Tammy Beaumont, Canterbury's own. Well, Kent's own. She's not from Canterbury specifically, but that's where the, the mm. Kent club's based. Um, she put on 275 with Sarah Taylor uh, in the 17 World Cup against South Africa when they made that gigantic score of 373 for five. And the South Africans did a decent job in chasing it. They, they made 305 for nine. But yeah, there was a record 378 runs made that day at Bristol, mm. which beat the previous record by over 100 runs. So... And yeah, the 275 partnership between Tammy and Sarah Taylor is the highest ever uh, for any wicket in one day, as I'm pretty sure. And I think maybe the highest partnership in one day history, something like that. But he was insisting on looking out in front of me. Is that in women's one day? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's, it's, there's there've been men's partnerships that have been higher than that, but that's the highest. There's one of three. There, there's Imam al and Fakhar Zaman put on 300 yep. plus. In Zimbabwe, um, yeah. Against Zimbabwe. Yeah, I think we dealt with that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? So, yeah, that's the standard now for for Mm. women's one-day internationals. And the reason he was insisting that I looked out in front of me was that Tammy was on her way to a century at the time, which was a nice way Mm -hmm. to bring it all back. So, thanks, James. Consider (laughs) your revisit done. But the number, the new number that comes in this week is from Philip Meng, the father of Nerd Pledge, (laughs) the, the, the guy who accidentally came up with the concept by sending us, instead of sending us $2 way back in the day, he sent us $2.22 and we said that's a joke about Richie Benno and we mentioned it on the show and then other people started sending us boutique numbers and eventually it turned into a segment and then it turned into an entire program of its own. All of this you're responsible for, Philip Ming. And the number that he sent through this time is $3.34. Now, I'm going to say that we could go with the career batting average of 90s all-rounder Mike Watkinson <laughs> after his four tests, who averaged 33.4. But having given this one to Adam, I am suspecting he's more likely to go with DG Bradman, 334 at Leeds. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk about Bradman in 1930 at Leeds, but I don't think we've ever actually talked about the 334 in any meaningful depth. So let's do that really quickly. And let's get there via the, the 28-29 Ashes, by the way. Remember, England pumped Australia in Australia in 28-29, 4-1, did it easily. So when Woodfull's side went to England in 1930, the expectations were that they were going to get trounced, but they didn't quite factor in uh, what Bradman was about to do. I suppose they might have given that he made 452 not out uh, in early 1930 for New South <laughs> Wales, which became the, um, the the first class record there against Queensland. And he did start the tour with a thousand runs before the end of May, uh, including 927 <laughs> in May in the space of 34 days. But but still, that you know, they they thought with Larwood and Morris Tate that you know they had the the weaponry to deal with him. We'll sort him out. We'll sort out that young colonial. <laughs> well, and they did initially at least. They, they won the first test by 93 runs. However, there was a bit of a sign of what might come. They set Australia about 425, I think it was, and they got 330-odd uh, of those. But Bradman got a century in the second innings and sort of kept them at bay. Then they go to Lords, and Bradman makes his 254, which we have talked about at length, that, that innings, which he described as technically his best ever. Mm-hmm. Then we moved to Leeds, which is the day in question. That's a thoroughly ridiculous test match, by the way. It's not just Bradman. Uh, it's, it's the fact that there's 1,601 runs made. In a, you know, I think it's in a four-day test match. Australia conceding 425 and 375, so 800 runs, and they still won by seven wickets. And you know that was largely <laughs> because they made about 900 or, or something like that. Anyway, so they, they, they go to Leeds, they bat first, and Archie Jackson's out 
almost immediately. So Bradman walks out at the full of the first wicket, scores two for one. Uh, by lunch, he's 105, not out. He's only the third uh, player to get a century uh, in the first session of a test after uh, Charlie McCartney and, and Trumper. He's got to a century in 99 minutes and uh, he's uh, reached that mark by 10 to 1. Second session brings up his 200 uh, in 214 minutes. Uh, it wasn't long before he passed 223, which was the highest score made against England to that time. That was by George Headley the previous year. So it gives you, I suppose, a bit of a sense that these gigantic numbers, they're big by today's standards, but by 1930 standards, they were just astronomical. They were out of control. Players didn't, people didn't do this kind of thing. Uh, nor did they go on and bring up a, a triple hundred in the space of um, 316 minutes. Uh, by that point, his own highest score of the previous week at Lords had been overtaken. The Ashes record of Tip Foster, his 287 from Sydney on Dubu uh, was gone as well. By the close of play, he'd made 309 runs in the day. Still nobody has made more runs in a single day than that in 1930. Uh, the final run of that day gave him 2000 for the tour by that point Neville Carter's wrote from the last ball of that day Bradman by a superb cover drive a stroke handsome enough for any batsman who's ever done the honour to cricket hit his 42nd boundary that was a royal way to finish a day which Australia will not forget as long as the game is played and loved there and true enough uh, so it goes nearly a century later he came back the next morning to finish the job knocking off Andy Sandham's 325 which was the the world record from uh, a couple of months earlier the first triple hundred in test cricket and finally Tate did get him for 3-3-4 caught from his 383rd uh, delivery in the middle they drew that test match uh, England were following on but it was a four day test they ran out of time as they did at Manchester the following week so it was all to play for at the Oval with the series tied at, at one apiece and, and predictably Bradman made another double ton uh, 232 uh, to take Australia to 695 and, and they won that test by an innings he would make another triple hundred at Leeds in 1934-304 his overall record in first class cricket at Headingley with 963 runs at an average of 193 uh, for the series of course he made 974 runs at 140 in just seven innings and he finished the summer with 2,960 runs at an average of 99 with a 236, a 185, a 252, a 191, a 254, a 232, a 205 and of course the 334 which stood for the longest time uh, as the Australian record and still goes down as uh, one of the most spectacular days if not the most spectacular day uh, in the history of Australian cricket. Thank you, Adam, and thank you, Philip Ming, for sending in a Nerd Pledge. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, you just go to patron.com slash the final word. You put in your number. You choose how often you want to send it. It's all in your control, and then your number goes on the list. It will come around on the show, and you stand a very good chance of being able to give away a slab of delicious Brick Lane beer to someone in Australia who you like. It could be you. You could give it to yourself. You could give it to someone else, and Philip Meng will get to do that um, because he will be sent the honorary case of 24 delicious Brick Lane products. Uh, Brendan Crabb, former winner during the week, sent through some artistic photographs of uh, himself enjoying a Brick Lane and uh, the good news that came in over the last week or so as well is that uh, the dark ale, the porter that Brick Lane made, just won 
an award, the world's best porter at the World Beer Awards. The Revolver. It doesn't get any more global than that. It's it's called the Revolver, isn't it? The, the uh, yeah. The, it's the uh, it is the two of the, the Steve O'Keefe special. Yeah, well the uh, well and the Andrew O'Keefe special Revolver wasn't it? Crawling out in the gutter, <laughs> at three in the morning, just waiting for a mate. <laughs> Just waiting for a mate. Glow sticks. Do you know who I am? I'm Shannon Knoll. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, listen to this as things that are flavours that you might get in this beer. A midnight black beer with restrained roasty characters and a velvety body. It bursts with unexpected bright hop aromas of candied pineapple, peach, pine resin and hoppy floral notes as well as rich flavours of toasted chocolate espresso martini and a spicy bitter finish that's every flavour I've ever heard of they're all in this one beer it's literally a taste explosion and one more thing I'll add Jeff before we uh, before we move on from Brick Lane is that we are going to have a new discount code which we're going to launch on Storytime this week which will mm-hmm. get you I say that I mean I hope we launch I'm, I'm just going to back us yep. in we will get the job done before story time is recorded in a couple of days which will open up Brick Lane if you just want to buy it uh, by saying you're a pal of the final word there'll be an offer code or something like that which will add to the add to the relationship we've already got I love mm-hmm. seeing that photo from Brendan during the week and I love uh, having the final word uh, linked in with Brick Lane who are good people doing good things uh, patron.com slash the final word nerd plan. Okay, Jeff, uh, it's time uh, for our mid-show break. When we return, we'll be talking about Pakistan. We'll be talking about Moen Ali. We'll be talking about the ashes. We'll be talking about quarantine facilities. We'll be talking about the Bob Willis Trophy final. We'll be talking about the county championship. We'll be talking about the Sheffield Shield and... The IPL, just that little thing uh, called the Indian Premier League. There's quite a bit going on this week on The Final Word. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Leon. It's a magazine. It's the best in the cricketing world. It's called Wisdom Cricket Monthly. I have the copy in my hand right now. I'm showing it to the camera if you're watching on YouTube. And if you scroll forward to about page eight, I think it is, uh, you will see my photo, the Sachin photo. Here it is, top six. If you're an Indian fan and you like that photo, teach me how to do one of those non... What's it called again? NFTs? Non, uh, non, non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible token. If you're an expert in non-fungible tokens, you can help me turn that photo into a bob or two, uh, be my guest. But we're not talking about photos. We're talking about this magazine, Jeff. And Liam Livingston is on the front uh, for he has had a big summer in white ball cricket. He's non-fungible. He can't be funged. Uh, Liam Livingston, they describe him as the smash hit of the summer, not the feel-good hit of the summer, but the, the, the smash hit of the summer, non-Queens of the Stone Age style. Um, he had a, a headline-grabbing season, that's what WCM say, featuring some scarcely believable shot-making and now has the chance to make his name on the world stage. So that's what the interview with him is about, with James Wallace, about uh, his whirlwind six weeks, the T20 World Cup coming up, and, and whether he can make it in Test Cricket, which which he thinks he can while still being himself. He says, whatever people say or might think about me, I'm not going to change my attitude as it has got me to where I am today. Yeah, that, that's certainly one way of seeing the world. Uh, Andrew Miller draws parallels uh, between the current England test team and the chaos of the 90s. They're, they're looking at Joe Root's rise back to the top of the world rankings in the India series. Uh, Lisa Kitely had a chat with magazine editor Joe Harmon about her first two years coaching England. Can you believe it's been two years 
since Lisa Cotley took over that job. Uh, also interviews with Javed Miandad, Alice Capsi, who'll be making her international debut soon enough. There's the county files. Mm-hmm. All 18 counties uh, are looked after in each edition of the magazine. There's an interview with Nick Gubbins in there, who's just signed with Hampshire, for example. Uh, Lizzie Ammons looking into whether the conference system's going to stay in county cricket. We might talk about that a little bit later in the show. We've got a very punchy editor's letter as well, Jeff. I'm not sure if you've read it yet, from Phil Walker, called A Very British Scandal. And yes, uh, that's worth a read around the bonuses that some members of the ECB were able to collect uh, for their work, which was a story that was broken by Ali Martin um, a couple of weeks ago, and, and Phil wrote about that at great length. And um, and Jeff, the only other main point to note here is that uh, it was Wisdom.com, which is a partner of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, who first broke the Azim Rafiq story. So they've had um, quite a bit to say in the magazine this month uh, via Lawrence Booth, the editor of The Almanac, how cricket has a, a long way to go in terms of tackling racism. Yeah, plenty more to uh, come in terms of interviews and so on as well. There's the iconography of cricket series where Phil's picking out great images from the past. There's Andy Zaltzman on the significance of the number 99. It's all happening. But look, the thing is that you can get this magazine for 44% off. I don't know why 44, but that's the number. 44 uh, off a a six-month subscription by using the link that we give you. It's in the show notes, so you don't need to remember it. But if you're typing it into the bar right now, it's a bit.ly thing. So B-I-T dot L-Y slash W-C-M-T-F-W. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the final word. That's what that means. 44% off, best cricket mag in the world. Nice and easy, six-month subscription for like, I don't know, 10 quid, 15 bucks for the six months. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Go and get it. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and as we foreshadowed off the top of the show, the news about England pulling out of Pakistan came in live while we were recording last week, so we did mention it, but we didn't have time to get into all of it. We've, We've covered off what it means for Pakistan to be screwed over in that we talked about that in relation to New Zealand, what the potential ramifications will be for Pakistan cricket with uh, other countries having much more pretext to pull out now. But a lot more came to light over the few days that followed, um, initially to do with the ECB's press release that implied, didn't say it directly or specifically, but it was cleverly worded to imply that they were pulling out of this tour for player welfare because Uh, players would be concerned about touring there after a very difficult summer with lots of COVID and isolation protocols and all of the rest. As it turns out, they didn't talk to the players at all. Heather Knight confirmed that. No player input was sought uh, before the decision was made and the decision was made unilaterally by the ECB with whatever advice they got to pull out. And so it's come to seem like a, a far less altruistic position more than a position of it will be convenient to not have to do this tour and this is a way that we can get out of doing it. Bearing in mind the whole tour was supposed to last four days, was it, that they were going to get in, quarantine for a couple of days, play a couple of T20s back-to-back and then fly out. Yeah, look, I'll add a bit of meat to the bones on this. So, first of all, when we talked about the domino effect last week, I didn't think it would be so crude as this. I mean, when we read the statement, almost live to... I say live, straight into the podcast. It took me a couple of read-throughs to understand what they were saying, which was exactly that, that it was about 
the men's team and their preparation for the T20 World Cup about not being ideal to have to go to Pakistan. Because no one's answered questions about this in a meaningful way, because we've not seen Tom Harrison or heard from Ian Watmore, Mike Atherton's been banging away and doing a great job making this case in the Times each day. It does lend itself to speculation, wild or otherwise. To what extent did players get consulted? Unclear. But I'd love to know, was this because they said to Owen Morgan, who's a very powerful man, oh, maybe you just fancy staying at the IPL. And he goes, actually, yeah, I would fancy staying at the IPL. Yeah, probably better for us to stay at the IPL, actually. Yeah, let's do that. Did they spend 72 hours preparing a response rather than 24 to 48, the original time frame, because they were shopping for security advice to back in what New Zealand had said? Well, that would have been a much better fig leaf. We expected, Jeff, didn't we, when we, we recorded last week, that New Zealand started all of this, or the decision made by the New Zealand Cricket Board alongside their government, that it would start yep. there and the security concerns would be cited by the ECB if they were going to pull out, and in turn by CA, and then Pakistan would be fucked. In the end, this has had nothing to do with that. It is the one thing missing in the statement, and that was reinforced by the High Commissioner, his intervention, Christian Turner, who said there has been no amendment in the advice given to British nationals coming to Pakistan. There is no change in the situation. He, he was clearly gutted at the ECB's decision. As to the players and what it means, so they, they talk of the men's World Cup preparation. And look, if you step back from it objectively, is it ideal that they'd have to do sort of a helicopter tour for five days and come out again and leave the IPL? Maybe not, but not every decision has to be in the best interest of, of you know, every decision can't be about your own self-interest. It has to be about the good of the game at some level. And what about the interest of the women's team? They don't talk about the women's World Cup. The women don't play a 50-over game. Their last one was Sunday, the 26th of September. Their next one is in February against Australia. These are the only other three games they had penciled in for the next five months. Where was the mention of their World Cup preparation? They weren't just playing the T20s. They were playing one days and sticking around for them as well. So I get why Pakistan... And what about the Pakistan women? I mean, it's all, it's all good yep. and well to think about this as, a, as a, the, the male prison, but the Pakistan women's team, they are denied the opportunity to host cricket over there. I get when Ramiz Raja says they've learnt a lesson, basically saying we gave so much last year and we've learnt a lesson not to fucking trust anybody. I agree with him. I agree with him. If, if you are Ramiz Raja right now as the new chair of the PCB, you have every right to feel gutted because this has nothing to do with security. It has everything to do with the fact that they can't be asked and they've been given a fig leaf via NZC and, they, and they, they may not have the security advice to back that in, but this is the outcome that they were clearly steering towards and they may not have gotten away with it without New Zealand, but as soon as that happened, they grasped the opportunity and here we are. And where does that leave Pakistan? And I'll build on this when I speak in a moment, but where does it leave the global game? Hmm. I, when, when we look at how this started out, I think last week we were broadly supportive of New Zealand cricket saying, well, if they'd, if they'd got an adverse security assessment, then what could they do? And I think the fact that they were there, it's not like they pulled out before they went, they were in the country, they were ready to play and they pulled out at the very last minute does indicate that they got something serious enough and specific enough to pull out. But additionally, as has been pointed out, why didn't they share that information with anybody in Pakistan? If there was a target to the New Zealand cricket team who then left, then presumably that target might be pointed elsewhere. People in Pakistan would have been at risk if there was a legitimate threat. So A, what was going on with that? And then B, with England apparently not being able to stand up the idea that there was a security reason not to go, it was basically the concept that touring there while 
people would be nervous about touring there was too hard an ask of their players. And a lot has been asked of players, a huge amount has been asked of players. But when we look at what was asked of Pakistan's players, and it's important to go back to this, at the point that Pakistan went to England last year, COVID was exploding in England, far worse than than it was in Pakistan at that point. There was no vaccine. There was no reliable treatment. The hospital system was being overwhelmed in the UK. It required months in the very tightest security bubble. And they were willing to do all of that on the expectation that they would be looked after by England at some point in the future. England could have sent if there were players who didn't want to go, if Owen Morgan didn't want to go, as he didn't want to go to Bangladesh in, in 2015. 2015, was it, or was it earlier? 20, it might have been 2016, but you're right. Yeah, that, M- Morgan was one of the two players who pulled out of that tour. If he didn't want to go, fine, send somebody else. Uh, let someone else captain the side. Maybe Alex Hales gets a game. I don't know. But I think there would still have been criticism had they sent what would have been regarded as a second-string squad, had a bunch of the top players not gone or the IPL players not gone. But it still would have got a match on. In Pakistan, it still would have enabled Pakistan home supporters to see a game of cricket featuring an England side, and it would still have kept that momentum and goodwill going towards Pakistan to try to help the game start again in that country. Like there have been such positive strides over the last couple of years. There's obviously a huge setback with the turmoil in Afghanistan, and and who knows what the repercussions of, of that will be? That sort of ripple effect through Pakistan, but. You can really only go with what's in front of you, which is that at the moment it has been secure enough for teams to tour. And if there wasn't a security reason for England to bail, then, yeah, what they've done seems... It's very much about their convenience. It's very much about the, you know, it's 9pm, you were supposed to meet someone somewhere at 7, but you're pretty tired and you're really not feeling up for it. And so you're like, oh, I feel a bit sick. I'm feeling... Might send a text. Yeah, I've I've come down with something. 24-hour bug. Yeah, won't be able to make it. Sorry. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, and look, the players are knackered, women and the men, in different ways. I mentioned the women's season in our first segment and how that's been more uh, compressed and, well, not compressed, but there's been more cricket than they've experienced in a domestic season before. And the men have been bouncing between formats. Of course, a number of them had to self-isolate uh, with the, with, with the, when COVID got into the camp. Some of them have had... Co- I get all of that, but there's a reciprocity here. And as you say, Jeff, Pakistan and the West Indies got England out of a 300 million quid hole last year. Yeah, they still recorded a loss of 100, 100 million quid, I think it was. But still, mm-hmm. that hole was filled in no small part by the fact that these two teams came out here and there was an expectation that the favour would be returned. And yes, it is more important that it's England. You can debate whether it should or shouldn't be. England going back there... Uh, it shouldn't be more important than South Africa going there and the West Indies going there and Sri Lanka going there and Bangladesh going there and others, Zimbabwe. But it would have been seen as an important step. It would have been. It would have been a great price signal, if you like, to the rest of the market that if it's good enough for England, even for three T20s, then there should be mm-hmm. no security concerns into the future for countries like Australia who are reluctant tourists at the best of times. So the, the, there was a very balanced view last week, Jeff, I think, around our conversation and others around, well, if there's a real present threat that, that's taken New Zealand from their hotel to the airport and out of the country on the day of the first one day, okay, that that's a bloody awful thing to happen and it does potentially set off a chain reaction, but you have to take them on good faith. 
the ECB have eliminated that good faith, then they have failed to answer questions about it. I think the PCA have questions to answer as well. I'm not putting them in the middle of all of this, but, you know, if people are pointing at the players, the Players Association, you know, I'd love to know what they have to say about this and their input to the ECB through this process. I want to know which players were consulted. Heather Knight, as she said on, on commentary the other day, wasn't. Were any of the other women senior players consulted on the way through? Or was it just a shit, actually, fuck, the men aren't going, fuck, uh, okay, we have to cancel the women's tour as well. Mm. Certainly feels that way to me. Um, And look, if the women had different reasons for not wanting to visit... I don't know this to be the case, but let's let, let's say the women did feel a bit uneasy about going to Pakistan at the moment because of what's going on and they felt they might be more vulnerable than the men. Okay, that's fine. Let's have that conversation. But leaving it all up in the air and leaving so many questions unanswered does lend itself to wild speculation. And it does bolster the argument that, say, Mark Butcher has been advancing, that player power has tilted this, has shifted this to a, to a place where, you know, they are tail-wagging dog sort of situation Mm -hmm. when it should be the ECB displaying leadership in this space. If it comes down to player power, it can equally be a a situation like we saw with Australia going to the Caribbean a couple of months ago where, okay, seven or eight of the the big names don't go. Exactly. That that means there are other players who, who could go. You know, tell me that someone like your, your second string England team that, that played Pakistan earlier in the summer when, when they got, COVID, yep. the first team got COVIDed out. You know, tell me that the, the John Simpson tier of Well, they're not at the IPL. The, 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 that, that tier of player yeah. is not at the IPL. And you, and you can't tell me that isn't part of the subliminal thinking here. You know, they're all at the IPL. Not all of them, sorry. They're not all at the IPL. A number of them are at the IPL. Can they really be fucked moving from the IPL to Pakistan for five days? I get it's an inconvenience, but a lot of things you have to do in life or as an employee are inconvenient. This is not the same is the conversation that's going on around the England team in the Ashes. It is a discrete, separate instance. It shouldn't be conflated. Yes, there's a degree of player power that, that we'll return to with the Ashes in a moment, but this is a situation where they've made the decision not to rock up and it has nothing to do with security. And I wonder whether, Jeff, we're going to turn around in 10 years' time and we're going to point at this moment. We're going to go, this was when... I mean, there was the India example recently where they exerted their authority over England, you know, at Manchester. There was Australia with South Africa. There was England with South Africa. Uh, there'll be other instances which I can't think of from the top of my head, but, you know, where boards have basically shown who is the stronger of the two. I wonder whether we look back in 10 years' time with a ruinous World Test Championship, with bilateral tours being a, a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, with any number of spurious arguments being used to, to not tour to play test cricket and this might be where we go yeah you know this was the sort of thing which changed the thinking around what players and what boards had to do what what their obligations were and Mm. and whether we live in a very different world in terms of bilateral cricket because of moments in time like this this isn't about test cricket this week it's about the england t20 team specifically but whether it will have wider and broader implications and this will hurt the game badly in the medium to long term. Do you think that's because teams will disengage with one another, that that the teams that are likely to be screwed about won't be reciprocating, they won't be touring the other countries? I just just think if you're Australia now, why would you go to Pakistan? You know, if you're one of the big three right now, why would you go anywhere? Why would you bother? What's the point? Not making any money out of it. Next year, Mm. Australia could avoid going to Pakistan. Their players can go to the IPL in a World Cup year they'll be able to get away with hypothecated points for the World Test Championship. Everyone else did. You know, they'll be able to find a way through that, I'm sure, that they can find some fig leaf there. And, you know, who even knows what the World Test Championship will look like in the future? 
So I'm simply putting that once you turn bilateral series into a uh, take it or leave it kind of thing uh, and, and you don't have COVID to lean on and you don't have security to lean on, that maybe this becomes a, a far worse world. Mm. And, and, you know, it, the question has been club and country, which is often a football conversation. What do you value more, playing for your club or playing for your country? That's never really been part of it with cricket with some, with some notable ex- exceptions. The country has come first. Now... Um, and I'm not saying it's an IPL thing here, not at all. In well, the country has still the country has always been, up until recently, the main economic driver. Yeah. Playing for your country is where you get paid, and but I think even now, playing for your country is where you develop a reputation that makes you saleable in the T20 freelance market. Yes. So it's easy to say every player just wants to go and play T20 franchise cricket instead but in order to get that reputation you know aside from a few uh, examples who it is starting to shift with your sort of players like Rashid Khan and Sandeep Lamachain and so on but for the most part most players who fetch a big price in T20 cricket do so because of what they've done in international cricket this is shameless from the from from the decision makers here I mean it, it is an awful thing to do to the PCB an awful awful thing to do to cricket in Pakistan could have wide-reaching repercussions for that country because their players are knackered why are their players knackered it's not because of the fucking PCB it's not it's not the fault of Pakistan cricket look at the Pakistan women you know what they've gone through to have an international team in the last 25 mm. years they're building towards a World Cup as well now, they don't get that opportunity to play against England, who are the defending champs in their, in their own backyard. This is bad stuff. This is bad stuff, and they should have to answer questions about it. And you can't divorce it either from the conversation around Moen Ali, who's just retired from Test cricket today. Now, I'm not saying Moen's retired for the same reasons his tour has been cancelled, but it is broadly all part of the same conversation, isn't it, around what individuals inside the game are willing to subject, subject themselves to. Uh, and in, and in mm-hmm. Moen's case... Uh, you know, he, he, he's acknowledged that the quarantine around the Ashes was probably what may have been the final straw, a decision he was weighing up during the India series when he's gone from being out of the team into the team, vice-captain, and retiring all in the space of about six whirlwind mm. weeks. Yeah, it's it's a crazy few weeks in the end, I suppose, and, and it, was, it felt like too little too late from England. When they popped him into the vice-captain's job, it was a, a way of saying, oh, look, we've screwed you around massively this year which you know they had getting him out to Sri Lanka where he gets COVID and then he's in quarantine and then he can't play those tests and then they don't pick him in the first test in India but they do pick him in the second and then put the hard word on him to stay when he's supposed to go home to see his family for a brief window of time and sort of make it out to be his fault that he's decided to go home in the middle of a test series and abandon England when in reality he'd spent what eight weeks in a hotel room by that point for the sake of playing one test match and then get him to come back for the T20 series in which he doesn't play, sits on the bench for five matches having come back out to India again. I mean, it's insane what they did with Moen Ali just this year as opposed to the the many years leading up of bouncing him around the order sort of everywhere from one to nine that he's batted, uh, having him be their strike spin bowler and then not their supporting spinner and then, you know, having him in and out of the side and there's very rarely been any clarity for Moen about what he's supposed to do in his career. And despite that, he's still managed to play 64 tests, be England's third highest wicket taker as far as spinners go and and make nearly 3,000 runs or just over 3,000 runs. So, yeah, no, just short, wasn't he, in, in the end? So yeah, just short. An extra- yeah. Extraordinary sort of career that he's managed to piece together out of all the bits and pieces. But you can see why in the end he would look at how erratic his treatment have been, how keen 
Chris Silverwood has been not to pick a spinner at all in his test side and would think, well, why bother going out to Australia where there's a good chance we get fucking hammered again and it's a pretty miserable tour for the sake of having that experience and and having to spend however many weeks in quarantine for the privilege. Yeah, a lot of this happened uh, in Australia in 1718 where it sort of the story started to change for Moeen as a test cricketer. Had a brilliant 2017, just dominated with the ball especially against South Africa but yeah, took 100 his wickets at 115 in that Ashes series and Nathan Lyon got him out seven times and it was all so daunting and overwhelming for him. I remember watching him bowl at the Wacker and just thinking, geez, this guy's cooked. And that was the same at Edgbaston in, mm. in 2019 on that, on that fourth day when, when Steve Smith and Matthew Wade and others just tore him apart. And he was out of the team, then out of cricket altogether, took a break to tend to his mental health after that. And that was yeah. part of the conversation but, in but the last ask, couple of years. Asked for a break and then immediately lost his test contract. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. I think know, the contract... Like a month later. Yeah, and Joe Root spoke to this yesterday. He was surprised that Moeen uh, left the team or left Test cricket so quickly after becoming vice captain, but kind of acknowledged that he could have been handled better. And that's that's Joe Root, by the way. I mean, Joe Root's not one to uh, he's good guy Root, and he's willing to cop a whack when there's a whack to be had. And he would know in his heart of hearts that in through the span that he's been captain, things haven't been managed with Moeen as well as they might be. And still, you know, in a wonderful. Joe, Joe Root's not deciding who gets a contract. You know, he's not he's not running no, central contracts. No, whilst that's true, I think that well, what you went through before that that sort of inconsistency of purpose with him, where does he fit in, was unclear at different points. Far more so in the last three or four years as than it was in the first three or four years of his Test career, where he started so well. I think back in 2016, some of those hundreds he made and the way he bowled in in 2017 to finish as only one of 13 players to take five fifers and five centuries I mean it's a brilliant list of cricketers all-rounders that, that he joins even though he averaged 28 with the bat and 36 with the ball and people will say well look if those numbers were reversed then maybe he could be considered a great all-rounder but still he made a, a big contribution I wonder what happens next for him you know uh, presumably he goes on to have a, a stellar domestic white ball career he's playing in the IPL at the moment he'll have a T20 World Cup later this year and another one the year after where he'll be roots deputy maybe even leading the team if they're doing a squad no not root sorry it's uh, he's the deputy of Alan Morgan of course but at different times with squad rotation and injuries he's led England in the last couple of years he didn't play in the 50 over World Cup final uh, in 2019 I'm sure that great so he was dropped from the squad after the Sri Lanka game and missed the pointy end of that competition at home so that'll be on the horizon for him in a couple of years too in India so plenty of time to go in the Moen Ali story despite the fact that he's 34 years of age and yeah Vish made a good point in his piece too that this is a strong proud Muslim man having his international career coincide with a surge of Islamophobia uh, in this country around Brexit especially in 2016 and that campaign and beyond so it's, it's not always been the easiest time for him to play for his country and yet he's always done so with a smile on his face and the kind of guy who who has brought many, many people into the sport and should be credited for that and looking forward to seeing what he can now do with the white ball. Go well, Moeen. Thanks for the entertainment. The rest of the England players broadly seem like maybe they're happy with the Ashes deal in that they've they've negotiated this thing with Queensland where they'll be able to... They'll have the sort of resort quarantine that we yeah. have talked about in the previous couple of weeks, they'll be able to get out to train for a few hours a day so it won't be staring at the hotel room wall for, for two weeks. The partners and kids will get the same treatment as long as they come out at around the same time. Um, but that means they have to start in Queensland. That's where they've got this arrangement, which is interesting given that New South Wales are trialling seven-day home quarantine for vaccinated people 
by October, I think. So, the, you know, there, there would be a chance, you'd imagine, for England players coming in at the end of November or even early December that, you know, if they were coming into New South Wales or maybe Victoria by that point, it might be easier to come into the country still. Um, but look, maybe things will be a bit more relaxed in Queensland by then beyond what they're expecting at this point. But they've they've at least worked out something that is acceptable by today's standards with today's vax rates and infection rates and all of that that will be carried forward to when they arrive. Yeah, I think the fact that there's been a lot of information relayed to the England team in the last three or four days has helped the situation. I mean, it was a fairly clear message coming out of the England team that they they were so anxious because they had no clue what was going to happen to them. So yeah, resort, quarantine, the fact that their families will get that when they arrive, be it with the team or or later on, is all going to be part of this. I'm I'm not sure. Well, I'm certain that Boris Johnson's conversation with Scott Morrison was obviously done to be able to say it was done. It was never going to achieve anything, but had had the effect of getting it more on the news list of, uh, or the front of the paper rather than the back of the paper, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, through the middle part of last week. And there was a story from Nick Holt in the Telegraph on Friday saying that we're on the cusp of mass withdrawals, and it feels like the weekend that's that's been disaster averted because of the quarantine arrangements. However, it doesn't. It doesn't fix the timing problem that we went through in great depth the other week, whereby families are going to be coming out much later who have school-aged kids will be coming out much later and they still won't get to see... uh, The families will not be together. I know that there's now figures like Vaughan saying, Michael Vaughan saying that they should just make a collective decision to do it and go ahead and get on with it. And I get where he's coming from with that because the longer this drags out, the more uncertainty there is, the harder it is to kind of mm-hmm. stick the landing and, and all the rest of it. But I, I, I still think that when you, when you fold into this, the conversation around the Perth Test match, so, you know, the fact that Perth is so locked up and so boarded up, People in England still get to see the pictures of people um, at the Shrine of Remembrance on the Westgate Bridge. There's a feeling over here, justified or otherwise, and let's say it's unjustified based on the vaccine rate, that there are a shitload of anti-vaxxers out here in Australia who are going to jeopardise the whole fucking thing. And I get that. They see the news. I mean, you know, yeah, the forecasts are quite positive, but forecasts are one thing, what they can Mm. see with their own eyes is another. And the fact that Perth is considered to be a a dungeon of sorts when it comes to getting in or getting out and will remain that way till February. And we saw during the week, uh, Christina Matthews saying that the Ashes need to get to Perth before Melbourne and Sydney, which to me, Jeff, felt like after the grand final and the success of the grand final on the weekend, a fairly sort of brazen attempt to get the Boxing Day test match. And again, I I hate this statement. Well, that was was direct. I mean, that that was explicit. She, she specifically said, we've had the AFL grand final, so why could, shouldn't we have the Boxing Day test? I, I will make the point that everybody who went to Perth for the AFL grand final to work on it, to make it happen, all of the media, all of the AFL management and so on, had to do two weeks in hotel quarantine. Yep. It is not sustainable to ask people to, coming into your state to do that coming from other states if you want to put an event on. That doesn't mean you get you deserve to put an event on. That means you don't. You know, that means it should be somewhere that's more manageable. All yes. of these England players have to do two weeks coming into the country. Okay, fine. That's one thing. But to expect them to do it again to get into Perth is lunacy. And, I mean, that's it's likely to happen. With cases, if, a handful of cases in Queensland now, what's the bet that within a couple of days the WA border shuts to Queensland, which it hasn't been before now? So I think Perth... WA has all but written themselves out of it just as they did last summer and can't really be sore about that because it's going to be too difficult, whereas there will be some ability to move by then between 
Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, and look, if Brisbane find themselves in the in the same boat over the next few weeks, then they'll be in that general pool as well. Yeah, well, the problem is that the, Queen, the forecasts have Queensland getting to the magic number of 80% too late to make this work. You know, the whole thing... <laughs> And we're getting in the weeds a bit here, but based on Dan Bredig's reporting in the in the Age, CA are unwhelling to budge on the schedule. The, the, the schedule, as it's been announced, is the one thing yeah. they won't pivot on. I mean, we, we went through in great depth a couple of weeks ago. If they move it back a couple of weeks or three weeks, and they started in Melbourne or started in Sydney, they can pull this off. But they won't because you know people can't be fucked thinking outside the square on this stuff. And the schedule's a schedule, and yeah, we'd have to resell ads, and yeah, it competes against the tennis and all that sort of shit. But if it means getting everyone in uh, and mm. getting the whole thing on, on the road a little bit later, just to buy some precious time and having the Brisbane test, and, and, and which, by the way, it's not cricket's fault. You know, you said before that WA's made a decision to behave in this way and take these government decisions. It's also not the fault of... Uh, of the sport that the vaccine rates are lower in some states compared to others I mean at the end of the day cricket can't be held hostage to the fact that Queensland's going to get to 80% a month and a half after New South Wales that's not cricket's fault and it's not the WACA's fault that their no. state government will make it difficult for people to get into the state even when they're extremely low risk people and there could be some sort of accommodation worked out that maintains the health system while you know not derailing the entire competition but there's basically no way out of this because if you want to bring the Perth test earlier as they're suggesting it can't be the first test because all the players are arriving in Queensland so presumably if there's difficulty getting from Queensland to Perth it'll still exist so if you make it the second test that doesn't guarantee that those players will be able to get from Queensland to Perth because that border could be closed by then and you can't make it the third test because that's Boxing Day and we will presumably be able to have people at the MCG in Melbourne, vaccinated people attending that game by the 26th of December. So it's not going to be Boxing Day and it's not going to be New Year's. Those two things aren't going to move. The only thing it could be would be the first or the second. Can't be the second because of the likelihood or the possibility of the border closing. Can't be the first because of where they're arriving. So there's just no way around it unless the WA government were willing to be a little bit more accommodating to, to try to help the thing go ahead. Yeah, it should be the first. If, they, if they're going to stick to the schedule, Perth should, I mean, again, it's like rewarding bad behaviour, isn't it? But you, you almost got to make it the first and the WA government have to give them the same arrangements as Queensland. But yeah, it's not going to happen, yeah, is it? Which it's they a won't. Point, they which they won't. Exactly, they won't. So it's all it's all ending up in, in a scenario where Perth miss out on an Ashes test and it goes, according to reports, to Monica or Hobart. And you know what? They would both Fine. do a stellar job. You know, the experience Jeff we had in Canberra a couple of years ago was first class at a wonderful venue. Every time we've been there, Jeff, for international cricket, they've done a stellar job. And the same applies to Bell Reeve, who get a bad rap from people who don't like how close it is to Antarctica and stuff like that. And, um, you know, when playing test matches in November, whilst that might be true, that it can be chilly there, and that it's not a concern in January, uh, which is when it Let would it be. have the fifth test. Let, let it, it be, be in the middle concern. of January. That's, and it, and also, that's the one it, it, time. That's yeah, the time you want to be that's down the time. there. And it also, have a test in Hobart there. And, and, but also, I, I mean, it would be a probably a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, an Ashes test match in Hobart. They've never had one yeah. before. They would sell it out every day. So it's not going to be like when the Windies were here in 2015, their most recent when test match. it was match. six degrees if, when play started in the morning and it was the start of November. Yeah, I mean, it was... Yeah. A, uh, it was just it poorly. A- it was never going to happen, right? They were never going to get great crowds to that, whereas this they can. So if I say if we end up in Hobart or we end up in Canberra, so be it, if that's what it takes. Jeff, in terms of the domestic game around the country, uh, staying with England to begin, I'll give you an updated score from the Bobbleless Trophy, shall I? 
I had a place. I had a look before. Lancashire, uh, fifty-seven for eight. Ooh. <laughs> well, I, I've Ooh. been I've been getting messages saying that there's going to be a bannerman with Luke Wood, but that's not going to happen. He's thirty-one, mm. not out from fifty uh, out of fifty-seven, so he's above fifty percent, uh, Luke yeah. Wood. But that, uh, it's unlikely he's going to bannerman it from eight, eight wickets down. He's he's not out. He could do it. He just needs to smack a few. Yeah, maybe I should maybe I should be paying a closer attention to that bannerman prospect. But the reason why Lancashire are there uh, because they qualified via coming second in the county championship. If you're in Australia listening to this, you might be like, why are they playing a Lord's Fire? for a different competition the week after the season finished? Mm. Good question. I think they should fix that next year and I'll I'll come to how in a moment. But uh, the championship proper, what a cracking final week it was. It's kind of everything you dream for in a league setup with three games all having an effect on who could win, two of those teams playing each other at an outground in Liverpool, so there were people fucking everywhere. Um, Warwickshire having to do it on the final day. Uh, you know, Knotts were in there fighting for a day or so as well. Uh, and Hampshire uh, losing a game. At one stage, they had Lancashire 47 for 7 in their first innings, and all they needed to do was win, to win the title, and they couldn't get it done. They lost by one wicket uh, in a thrilling clash there. Dane Villa sweeping mm-hmm. Lancashire to victory, the captain. But I mean, yeah, this is the stuff you dream of as a county fan, having it all come down to the final day. Well, they had a whole day because Lancashire won on day three, right? Yeah. So they they had a day of where they were top and they were like, we, we're going to win this thing as long as this other mob don't win their game, which at that stage was about, I don't know, 700 for four or something. So no, like- the, 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 the other game was the one where, I mean, now the other game, the, the, that's the Surrey well, game, the, 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 the no, game no, you're no, referring I'm, to... I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but I'm saying it was a game that didn't look like there was going to be a result at that. That's the right. Warwickshire game. The Warwickshire game by day three, I was thinking they're probably going to draw this, and as it turned out, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, so Warwickshire were 157 runs ahead going into the fourth day, albeit I think they were one down. And they had to kind of execute it perfectly with the declaration, enough time to bowl them out, this being Somerset. Yeah. And they did it so well. They smashed 100 in an hour, gave themselves, I think, 79 overs to bowl out Somerset. In the end, they did it easily in about 40 overs, bowling them out for 154 and winning by 118 runs. Some big highlights from Chris Woke hitting the stumps. The ball to Craig Overton's the stuff you dream of. Likewise, the, to, to Jack Leach later on. Liam Norwell, Craig Miles, Tim Bresnan, Danny Briggs all had a say with the ball as well for the home side and yeah they win the title for the first time in nine years having started the round in second spot they leapfrog Hampshire who go below mm-hmm. Lanks and thus why Warwickshire are playing Lanks in, in the final of this new competition which uh, which last year was kind of with all on the line they're not being a county championship but this year is like a it's like a it's just a one-off game for a cup, but they're playing mm. it over five days in theory, at least at Lords. It's the Community Shield of county cricket. Well, you this know, is it. I, play. I think that at they the should... start of each football season, they um they they the, the first the first two from the previous season play off, right? This so is my fix. So I think it's the FA Cup winner and the, and the Premier League winner. But this is my my fix for next year. You should make the Bob Willis Trophy final mm. the curtain raiser on the season. So the team that finished first and second the previous year, then they should play at Lords to start the fresh season. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be a great mm. event. I mean, how much attention Maybe. would there be if this was kicking off? I mean, yes, it would be April and yes, it would be cold. But I'll tell you what, it's cold in the last week of September and the start of October as well. So whether it's at the very end or the very start, it's going to be cold at Lords. Small price to pay to have a, a big set piece, showpiece event uh, to start the year. I've thought about the Community Shield quite a bit um, in the last few months because when they announced the football Super League thing, when all the big clubs were going to go in together and 
former fuck you to everybody else league and they listed all of the accomplishments of the clubs on the website for this thing they were like Manchester United winners of Champions League in all these years blah 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 Real Madrid Champions League 10 Champions League wins in the last 30 years or whatever and then they were like uh Tottenham Hotspur <laughs> Community <laughs> Shield 1992 <laughs> <laughs> you're going to you're gonna, you're gonna have some very angry Tottenham fans, including the uh, including the co-host of the Wisdom Cricket Podcast, uh, Phil Walker. You can't fight me on true. it. It's true. That's it's what it said. I'm, I'm just reporting the facts, people. Uh, Jeff, for the second time in 2021, the Shield is overlapping with the Championship, or did overlap mm-hmm. last weekend. So Andrew Sampson worked out that it was the first time ever uh, back in April with the Shield ending so late because of COVID. Well, mm-hmm. this time around, the Shield started in September. Uh, and, well, let's start with the news, which is that we've touched on it before, but Tasmania have pulled out of their game in Queensland this week because of COVID, those three COVID cases in Brisbane. Three COVID cases, bloody hell. Um, three well, COVID, and I get it. Presuma- presumably the thinking is the Tassie border could shut at any minute and so no, of they course. get in before it happens. No, I, I totally get the rationale, but it just seems so weird as a, someone living in London yeah. for the last 19 months that three COVID cases, I mean, I've had three COVID cases this week, you know. Um, Tassie, yeah. so, but Tassie have um, pulled out. So the game they did get up was Adelaide at Karen Rolton Oval between West Australia and the Sackers. Uh, WA made 465 for nine. Sean Marsh, 118. Cameron Green, 106. Here he goes. Marsh Here has now made again. six first-class tons since the start of 1920. He's won the Player of the Year twice in the One Day Cup. He's into his 21st year with Western Australia. He's 38 years old. He's now made 32 tons. We've said it before. There's a, there's we'll a say gap it again. in the middle order. There's a gap in the middle order at number five. It's not... Too late. It's coming home. It's coming. Sean Marsh is coming home. It's coming. At the other end of his career is uh, is Cameron Green, who's now made. You, you love the conversion rate, don't you? Eight centuries at first class level. That one hundred six against SA, and only four half centuries. So he's averaging fifty six, and he's twenty two years Hedley of age. Areas. Well, yeah, he was he, was ten and five in well, Test cricket. Well, he's going to be batting number six for Australia in the Ashes. That's absolutely certain. I've got a quiz question for you, Jeff, okay. and I don't know the answer to it, which I'm quite excited about. Who batted number five for Australia at Sydney and Brisbane in 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 last summer? I asked that question because I was I was thinking about Travis Head, who was dropped after Melbourne, made a hundred in reply for South Australia, one hundred and sixty-three yeah. out of four ninety-two. Just like last year, he made two one fifties to start the year. Mm-hmm. This time last year, uh, Jake Carter was the other man in the runs, the the twenty-five-year-old left-hander who came via WA. But I didn't want to look it up. I just wanted to ask you: Do you remember off the top of your head who batted five for Australia at Sydney and Brisbane? Because I can't. Wasn't Head batting five at that? No, point? they dropped him. Oh, they, they um, dropped him after Melbourne. Yes, and Green was six. And Green batted so. six. <laughs> That's a very good question. I mean, it's not as though I'm not. Uninf- we're not informed people on the gap. We were there. We're I mean, there. I mean, I've covered every Australian Test match for six years. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I, I have an idea what's going on. But off the top of my head, I haven't got a fucking clue who batted five for Australia when they dropped Travis Head after Melbourne. Well, wait. We can probably uh, work it out. I mean, Perkovsky opened at Sydney. Marcus yeah. Harris opened at Brisbane. Who came mm. into bat number five when, when Travis Head dropped out? Mitchell Marsh didn't come in, did he? Mitchell Marsh didn't come in. And Hanscom was gone. Hanscom was gone. And uh, why can't I remember this? He probably didn't make any runs. It wasn't the king. Alex Carey, who made, um, who made runs in, no. in the one-day team this week. He was set to bat five in, in South Africa. Well, it was Wade, wasn't it? You're probably Wade, right. Wade went to five Wade because went to he five. opened at the MCG. 
Wade yeah, opened at the it. MCG and then he went back down the order in Sydney. Well, there it is. You, you've got it. We've got it. It, was, it, was, it has to be Wade, right? But the, the, the point here is that it's been so long since Australia has played and so they are so off the map in terms of test cricket that that doesn't come instinctive to either of us. It just took us five mm. minutes to work it out. But Travis Head was the incumbent number five before his uh, season fell off a cliff last year and he's making yeah. runs. I suppose they would want him to be the five. He got dropped when uh, Pekowski came in because Wade went down. Right, and there you go. Someone had, someone had to make space for Wade who'd been doing a job for the boys by opening the batting. Do you think Head's the player they want to bat five in the Ashes? Uh... I think he's the player they want to bat five eventually. It's whether they think he's going to be ready to do it in the Ashes. If not head, then who? Sean Marsh. I don't know. I, 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 the, thing is, the thing is, usually I'd give you an answer on this. I've got a fucking clue. Alex Carey? Give Maxie a bat. Well, I'd bring Maxie in, but mm. we're not going to. Hashtag give Maxie a bat. Hashtag inspired by HCL. <laughs> Ryan Philippe uh, made uh, 100 mm. in the white ball game. Mitch Marsh made one as well. They made 352 for six. Then the King made 128 not out. Carrying his bat for South Australia, Kerry. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Made 128 not out at a 237 all out. Not often that you carry a bat in a one day. In a one day. Jason Berendorf must be back from his latest back injury. Took four for 39. There was going to be a one day between Queensland and Tassie as well, but that's called off because of the aforementioned COVID shambles. And to finish off in that conversation, it was, it was a high-scoring draw at Karen Rolton. Mm-hmm. I think all first-class games at Karen Rolton are high-scoring draws <laughs> on the available evidence. In tribute to Karen herself, who was yes. always high-scoring. So that, that's, uh, that's the end of round one of the Shield, which totaled one game. Can I tell you a great <laughs> fact about uh, Josh Philippi, who we, sure. we call Ryan Philippi on this show? His middle name is Ryan. No, stop it. Really? It is. It is. Yep. I want to ask him about the, the making of Cruel Intentions. That must have been such yeah. a fun film to make. Yeah. How did they How did they lace Sarah Michelle Gellar into that corset? Yeah. It like it was going <laughs> to throttle her. Um, can, 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 can I tell you another fact that I learned during the week, another middle name that I learned? Yeah. I learned what Maxwell Sheffield's middle name is. Mr. Sheffield. Yeah. I know, I, he has a middle name. What is it? The character in the show. I mean, like, it'll be something aristocratic, won't it? Beverly. Beverly. Maxwell, Beverly. Beverly Maxwell Sheffield. Beverly Sheffield. We had a message during the week asking us to start doing the Mr. Sheffield stuff again. So, yeah. Um, I, I suppose that, that qualifies me saying it then. It'll be on a shirt when we get around to making the shirts. <laughs> the Mr. Sheffield Shield will be foremost. There's one more domestic competition we need to take a look at before I go and collect my new phone. I'm quite excited about this, Jeff. It's going to be the highlight of my week. Now that I've finished working on eight broadcast games in eight days and I can kind of do normal adult grown-up things, I took Winnie to nursery this morning and I'm getting a phone this afternoon. The IPL's on. Maxi mm-hmm. made runs, took, made 56 of them from 37 balls against Mumbai after a couple of low scores to start. That's all what we really care about, I suppose. Um, but mm-hmm. other things are happening. David Warner's been and dropped. took a couple of wickets as yeah, well. Took I wickets. mean, they, they lost the game, but he took a couple. Good on him. I mean, yep. I, I, I hope it goes really well for him. Uh, beyond that, I suppose it's, it's after the Lord Mayor show, isn't it? It's the wrong time of year for me to give a fuck. I, I, I am not in the mood. I'm going to Greece next week. And sorry, that probably sounds quite yeah. indulgent for the many, many of you who are in lockdown at the moment. But sorry, I didn't mean it to come across that way. But yes, this is you've, my... You've, you've literally haven't taken a day off work in about six years. So uh, yeah, I, for one, am relieved that you're going on a holiday. Yeah. Warner has been dropped by the sunrises of Hyderabad. Uh, mm. And Steve Smith can't get a game at Delhi. Punter sunrise, won't pick him. sunset. And then Marcus Stoinis. Sunrise, done his, sunset. Done his fucking hammy. Oh. 
don't know if you saw that, but that's a bit of a problem with the T20 World Cup, which will probably include Smith, Warner, Stoinis. <laughs> One's injured and two aren't playing. Just some so, beautiful uh, selection work from Australia once yeah. again. They always get it right when it comes yeah. to a T20 World Cup. Nathan Ellis going okay. Josh Hazel would go okay. But my sense is that mm. this isn't going well. I'm going to put one thing out there, which is that when they picked the squad, I don't think they were relying on Nathan Ellis to play a central role. No. I don't think they saw him as one of the pillars. You know, I think they saw him as a bit of a fresco above the pillars, maybe yeah. a bit decorative, maybe, yeah. a, maybe a little contribution here or there. But, yeah, if it, it's, not, it's not Ellis-centred, the Australian campaign. We'll keep a better eye on the IPL in future weeks maybe, Jeff. Have you watched any of the games back yet like, since they started the tournament last week? No. No, it's it's mostly for me been honestly it's been because I've been so busy with the uh, with the other games oh, that I've been doing between. I've K- had another game of cricket on every day. Yeah, at so least one. If, if you're watching two. this on YouTube and you're going, why don't you like the IPL? We do. We did daily shows on the IPL before. We streamed games in the first half of the year. We'll watch alongs. We did. We interviewed Maxie about ten times. It's not that we have an issue with the IPL. It's just that. It's just not quite working for me this time. It's not quite the It's right like fit. Christmas in July, you know? You're like, frankly, I'm not going to put that much effort into Christmas in July <laughs> because it's not Christmas. Because <laughs> there'll be another one in December and there'll be another IPL another one in, in April. <laughs> That's for sure. You will. <laughs> uh, there'll be another episode of The Final Word uh, that comes up on the weekend to Storytime. Jeff, why don't you wrap this one up? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, and there'll be this episode next week as well. That's what works uh, with a weekly show. That's how it goes. But this has been... The final word with Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Uh, thank you to DC, our editor, who makes it beautiful. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Thanks to Brick Lane for supporting the show, bricklanebrewing.com, if you want to get a delicious beverage for yourself or others. And a special thanks to all of the people on Patreon, the lifeblood of the show, the ones who let us keep doing this week in, week out, for as long as we are able to make words come out of our mouth about the game. Bless you all and we will see you again on the weekend. The story time. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself and there's some stories I can tell you I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well and there's some stories I can tell you Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.